Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Julie R. and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Wednesday, September 12th, the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting. Today we are reading from the big book and we are on page 110, the second paragraph. Let's go back to husband number one, reading through five paragraphs, ending with, you want to be helpful rather than critical. Comments will be on all. Today's readers are Carmela G, Jen A, Felicia D. The share ID for Monday, September 11th, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting is 11,899. For the 10 a.m. meeting, it is 11,900. Away preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Tenzin P. to read the 12 steps. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, Tenzin P. checking in. Uh, Well, I'm in Boston today, but uh, here we go. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except one to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him 
praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kenzin P. I will now ask Laura A. to read the 12 traditions. Laura A., star one, to unmute. Hi, sorry, I thought I was unmuted. This is Laura A., postal reader in New Hampshire. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there's but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight. Overeaters Anonymous remain, remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. 9. OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, and the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thanks for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you, Laura A. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page 110, Starting with the second paragraph, let's go back to husband number one, reading through five paragraphs, ending with, you want to be helpful rather than critical. Comments will be on all. I will now ask Carmela G. to begin reading. 
Good morning. This is Carmela G. Thank you so much for your service and allowing me to do service. Let's now go back to husband number one. Oddly enough, he is often difficult to deal with. He enjoys drinking. It stirs his imagination. His friends feel closer over a highball. Perhaps you enjoy drinking with him yourself when he doesn't go too far. You have passed happy evenings together chatting and drinking before your fire. Perhaps you both like parties, which would be dull without liquor. We have enjoyed such evenings ourselves. We had a good time. We know all about liquor as a social lubricant. Some, but not all of us, think it has its advantages when it's reasonably used. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry. Even though your husband becomes unbearable and you have to leave him temporarily, you should, if you can, go without rancor. Patience and good temper are most necessary. Our next thought is that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. If he gets the idea that you are a nag or a killjoy, your chance of accomplishing anything useful may be zero. He will use that as an excuse to drink more. He will tell you he is misunderstood. This may lead to lonely evenings for you. He may seek someone else to console him, not always another man. Be determined that your husband's drinking is not going to spoil your relations with your children or your friends. They need your companionship and your help. It is possible to have a full and useful life, though your husband continues to drink. We know women who are unafraid, even happy under these conditions. Do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so, no matter how hard you try. We know these suggestions are sometimes difficult to follow, but you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. Your husband may come to appreciate your reasonableness and patience. This may lay the groundwork for a friendly talk about his alcoholic problem. Try to have him bring up the subject himself. Be sure you are not critical during such a discussion. Attempt instead to put yourself in his place. Let him see that you want to be helpful rather than critical. Wow, the thoughts that flood my mind while I was reading this. First about my behavior, then about others and how I reacted. So I will begin with um, the very first paragraph where it says, you enjoyed the company. People enjoyed my company because I surrounded myself with other compulsive overeaters. So what do you want to do tonight? Want to have dinner? Oh, wonderful idea. So we could all fill our faces. Um, Then it became the reality that we all at some point would look at ourselves and say, oh, we need to go on a diet. We can't keep doing this. 
And so we distance ourselves. But then I would get another group. So I had a circle of what Bill W. calls fair-weather friends. And the funny part is I thought they were real friends. And my insanity would, would just take over, my insanity of my disease. And then when he when Bill talks about Bill W talks about a lone wolf, I would think, yes, I am alone. I don't really have friends. They're not really friends. And then I become the crazy thinking owns me. And then I need to eat more because that's my companionship. And so it's such a vicious cycle throughout my lifetime. And my poor family suffers the whole time. My family has to put up with my moodiness. My staff at work never knew who they were getting in the morning because sometimes I would come in and I would be angry and sometimes I would be come in and be the pleasant, good morning, everyone. So it was a combination of insanity and the obsession of the food that was driving me in and out of friendships and relationships and making them all think this woman is too difficult to be around. But thank God for program. And then it became time to try to convince some of my dearest friends that they should come into program. And I was put in my place immediately. So now I just love from a distance. They see my behavior, and I walk the road of friendship with my friends and all the roles within my family that I play, and I am there. I am there, and they know I'm there, and I am considered a miracle by some of my family members and by some of my friends. And within myself, I know that I am a miracle because I could never have done this without my higher power and working these steps. Thank you for allowing me to pass. To, I pass. Thank you, Carmel G. Okay, it is now time to open it up. Uh, we are on page 110. We started with the second paragraph. Let's go back to husband number one, reading through five paragraphs, ending with, you want to be helpful rather than critical. If you could just say your name once, and I will write as fast as I can. Who would like to Ross, share? Ross Linda Carr, D. From Connecticut. Linda J. Somebody from Connecticut. Linda D. Linda D., thank you. Larry. Marie J. Marie J. Morrissey. R. Maura Z, that's R, and that'll be R6. Okay. All right. So we have Roz G, Linda D, Larry K. Marie it was Roz J. R. Ah, Roz, Roz R. Okay, Roz, you are up. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, my name is Roz R, and I'm recovered in Florida. And um, Wow, this was a pretty potent chapter. Um, I mean, reading, you know, um, there were a lot of things that stuck out, you know, looking at this in the opposite direction, you know, uh, I realized what my family and husband had to go through. But, you know, it says perhaps you enjoy drinking with him yourself if he doesn't go too far. 
Um, he could be difficult to deal with. Um, you know, my husband used to love to, uh, to eat uh, and to have snacks, and I would be on all these diets, and, you know, I vowed I wouldn't have anything, and then a lot of the things that he wanted to do revolved around food, and, you know, he would like to take a bottle of wine and cheese and crackers like normal people do to the beach, and, and I would take, you know, my drink and, you know, some fruit, or, but inevitably, you know, I just would cave, and then he would be normal. He would go, you know, on his busy way the next day or that night. And, you know, he'd be normal. And I would be set up for a binge and I would have to lie. I would say I was going to a meeting. I would go get something to eat. I mean, that little bit at the beach triggered, who knows, weeks and weeks of, of um, you know, me going off into a, a tangent of food eating. But the thing that really hit me was this part here um, that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And that whole paragraph there, um, my husband constantly criticized my weight. And the more it was criticized, the more I ate. And the most horrible thing I think that I dealt with, and, and you know, maybe he was doing the best he could, but he used to buy me clothes that were three sizes or four sizes too small, beautiful clothes. And then he would bring them to me. And that was supposed to be my motivation. And what that did was it, it made me feel so ashamed and, you know, I would try so hard and I felt like I had to lose weight fast. So, so I would, I would, you know, just starve myself. My, my behavior was starve and binge, but this has been a devastating, you know, years and years of devastation, you know, being an OA and, and thinking the only thing that I needed to do was lose weight and my life would be okay. And, and every time I did get down to my weight, it was like, it was so boring. Like, well, what do I do now? Because my life focused around weighing myself, losing weight, and, and I never stayed there. So, you know, this whole thing um, reminds me, uh, you know, what my husband's, I had two. Unfortunately, they both lived with me in a crazy state. There were good times, um, but I always lived around the food. Um, and now to have this recovery to give it back to other people and to have the neutrality with the food, you know, and to have a way of dealing with my emotions, you know, is the most, it's like, where was this all those years? But, you know, it's there now, whatever years I got left, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy it and share it. So let, thank you for letting me share. I'll, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Rosar. Linda D followed by Larry K and Marie J. Go ahead, Linda D. Good morning. It's Linda D from Connecticut. I'm, so very grateful to be here, to be alive, to be recovered almost five years. So watch your step, Linda, because it's a day at a time. Um, when the reading uh, was done, I was very angry because uh, you can't tell me not to be angry coming from an addictive family. It's not just me and what I did. It's them and what they did. And when I came into the program, I was sitting on that rage. I didn't even know it was there. That's a very important part of what was underneath the weight. Of course, I did all the things that the previous person said, one way or the other. But there I was, and I'm reading a book that's telling me, don't be angry with these people. I had no way to do any of that. It's very important when I'm reading this section of the book to realize all the previous chapters that propelled me, because they're truthful, into the 12 steps, and it's the 12 steps, it's a higher power that released me from 
this anger. I can't be uh, Mary Poppins and come up with this. I can't um, behavior modify myself into it. This is a very important part of the transformation, the spiritual transformation, because that's the bedrock of the change in my life. So when my parents passed on, there was peace. But boy, there was a hell of a lot of violence before that, one way or the other, verbal or not so much physical, but verbal, physical to myself. So thank you. God bless God and all of you for the 12 steps. Thanks. I pass. Thank you, Linda D. Larry K., followed by Marie J., and Maura Z., and SR. Go ahead, Larry. Good morning. Thanks so much. You know, uh, I cringe when I read some of this stuff. Seems like it was written so long ago, like a, some, you know, Ozzy and Harriet kind of thing. And here's Bill writing while he's a philanderer and, a, you know, a drunk earlier and so forth. And, oh, we live in a different time now, right? So acceptance is no good. It's passive and accepting things as they are is giving up and it's resignation to something unpalatable. You know, I've come to know that that's not the real meaning of acceptance. Acceptance doesn't by any stretch of the imagination mean passive resignation. It's actually quite the opposite, actually, because it it takes a huge amount of fortitude and motivation to accept what is, especially when we don't like it. And then, you know, work, have the ability to work effectively as best we possibly can, you know, dealing with the circumstances that we find ourselves in and, and, you know, and, and, and try to redirect and, and, and what we can change and leave, leave what we can't change alone. So for me, in other words, desiring the world to be something it is not at the moment and ruminating with thoughts about how things should be, you know, we put them aside. And then I begin to seek change that can be changed. The rest I leave to God. See, it's beyond my pay grade, and I've come to learn that. And for me, suffering at its core is wanting reality to be anything what it is, lacking acceptance. And for me, it's as if my brain responds to positive events like Teflon nowadays and negative ones like Velcro. It's like I can't, I can't see the beauty of the, the river or the sky or anything around me because all I'm focused on is on those little burrs that stick to my clothing like Velcro, and those are the, that negative stuff. And, and I allow my blessings to be blurred and crowded out by demands. And now I have a life where I no longer demand that people and circumstances bend to my will. It's not an Ozzy and Harriet deal, but the irony is I'm truly free today. I'm truly free most of the time. And that's what I read here because in the past I would read this and think, oh, it's it's very sexist. It's, you know, some 80, 90 or more years ago, it's a different time. We demand and bend and manipulate and we get what we want. And no, it's just the opposite. With that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Marie J. followed by Maura Z and SR. Go ahead, Marie J. Hi, thanks. This is Marie J. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Colorado. 
And um, I could never read this chapter before, and I'm so glad that I I can find really good meaning out of it, even though it is kind of some archaic language. And this particular section is pretty two-sided for me because there's me as the addict, and now there's me also as the recovered addict observing other potential addicts. And I just love the line, we all know about the liquor as a social lubricant. Um, Because everything feels easier for me when I'm numbed out. And I'm more fun when I'm numbed out. You know, I'm looser and I'm protected. And the food just, you know, puts me in a position of uh, ease and comfort. And so today, as a recovered addict, I have to work to stay vulnerable. And I have to work to stay intimate. Because there's nothing there for me to use to address the discomfort that I can feel when I'm in my diseased thinking. But even in my recovered state, it takes some conscious effort to be emotionally vulnerable with people, especially with my husband, you know, without having any kind of substance to give me ease and comfort. And I still go to parties and everybody's eating and drinking and it can be uncomfortable because I don't quite know what to do with myself when I used to eat all the time or drink or whatever, you know, just to lubricate. And last weekend... Um, we, we have an annual event out here in Colorado called the Scottish Island Festival, and it's up in the mountains, and it's a really big deal. I've been going to it for 30 years, my best friend of 50 years, and I take our families there, and I, I'm there with, with – I practically raised her kids with her, you know, and so we were all there, her adult children and my family, and I watched um, these people that I was with lubricating with food and booze. You know, it's a big food and booze fest. And I sat back and really observed what was going on with me as I watched all that was happening. And I had no desire to lube up with food or booze or anything. And I had neutrality. And why? Because of these 12 steps and because of my conscious contact with God. And I also noticed, and this is so beautiful, that I had no judgment or superiority or self-righteousness about their behavior. I had no need to fix, manage, or control anything that was going on with them. And that's all because of this program. It gives me this design for living that leaves me free free from the need to control or manage anything outside of myself, free to live my life and participate with vulnerability and, and with, with freedom without having to lube up, regardless of what's going on around me. And that was such a miracle to be in that environment, just watching all this and observing and not having a need to judge or do anything and not having a desire to feed myself something that was going to numb me out. So thanks. I pass. Thank you, Marie J. Maura Z, followed by Nessa R. Good morning, Julie. Thanks for your service. Maura Z. Uh, Recovered in Virginia, starting my timer. It's, It's difficult to put myself on the other side and look at what my ex-husband or my family members were seeing because I I only had um, limited um, instances 
with um, family coming to me or husband coming to me with um, love and compassion in their hearts and their minds and on their lips wanting me to stop eating. It was almost always in anger. Um, so I, I was... Um, I I wasn't the recipient of the loving wife that they're instructing the you know the spouse the partner to be here in this writing. It was just the opposite for me. And I could sit here and I could have a pity party about that because that was my knee jerk reaction, of course, because my ego is still a well well and alive. But here's the deal: I wasn't very lovable. I wasn't very nice. In fact, I was a total raving bitch at times. Why would anybody want to have anything to do with me? And that just perpetuated the cycle more and more and more. No one wanted to be around me. At least that's what I thought. That's how I felt. And yet I had a husband that stayed. I had sisters that stayed. They didn't abandon me. They were there. But when I was living it, I was hell on wheels. And so what you put out into the universe so I've heard, is what you get back. I was not approachable. If you talk to me about my weight or my eating, belligerence, anger, um, rage even. So now I'm flipping it and I'm looking at it from the point of view of an aunt, looking at her nephew who's wanting to stay in Myrtle Beach where the eye of the storm is likely going to hit and the storm surge alone could take him out. He doesn't want to leave. And I realize it's because if he leaves, and especially if he comes to stay with Aunt Mora, well, then he won't be able to drink. And so I'm now watching in color someone deciding their substance over life. And it's like looking in a mirror. Because that's what I did for so many years before I found the steps in this book. And I'm telling you, there is hope and God's grace. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Maura Z. And that's R. You are next. Hi. Good morning. Vision from you. My name is Nessa R. And I am a recovered compulsive over here in Toronto, Canada. Um, this line really touched me today in, uh, in many ways. It says, you should never be angry. Um, you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. Do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may never be able to do so no matter how hard you try. And I, I was on the receiving end um, of all this with regards to my eating and my food from my husband and from loved ones around me. Uh, but don't you know, I was the one dishing it out um, in other respects, trying to change others because, of course, what they did or didn't do, what they say or didn't say, um, was the cause for my having to compulsively overeat. And even when I came into the room, this was still the case. You know, my husband and I have had a reasonably good, consistently good relationship in the 27 years that we've been married. 
Um, and most of our fights were actually about my weight. And he tried everything he could to get me to see the light, what I was doing to myself, you know, trying to be angry, trying to be patient, trying to plead, trying to be loving, you know, all these things. And nothing really worked. Um, nothing really worked, um, no matter how hard he tried um, to get me into recovery. Only pain can, a per- can get a person into recovery. And even though I was in the rooms, I still wasn't in recovery until my pain got so great, until the pain of being in the food was so much greater than the pain of not being in the food. And so, you know, my own experience has taught me not only with the fact that people could not get me into recovery any sooner that I was ready to, nor with the fact that I was never able to change people to suit myself, that, you know, I cannot control others any more than others can control me. A person um, can only change when they want to change, when pain spurs them to change. And, you know, sadly, some people have a higher pain threshold than others. You know, for some people, it may be 70 extra pounds, like was my, my case. But some people, it could be 200 extra pounds, 300 extra pounds, 400 extra pounds. Who knows what it is? You know, and so now that I'm watching um, loved ones um, compulsively overeat themselves to destruction, you know, I have to remember these lessons um, that if it didn't work for me, why would the nagging and the anger and the, you know, trying to control uh, work for them? Um, you know, these are lessons that I need to um, that I need to internalize also in how I deal, you know, with sponsees, for example, or people in the meetings who come year after year, week after week, and they don't change. You know, there is nothing I can do to convince other people that they're compulsive overeaters. Right. There's nothing I can do to thank you to convince other people that they need to do what I did to recover. They got to come to that conclusion themselves the same way I came into that conclusion myself um, through enough pain and suffering. And um, with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. R. For those who just joined us, we are on page 110, starting with the second paragraph. Let's go back to husband number one, reading through five paragraphs, ending with you want to be helpful rather than critical. Who would like to share next? Roxanne. Katie Lee from Lisa J.R. Ginger C. Ginger C. Katie G. Um, Lisa Lisa B., I think. Kelly J.R. Ah, Lisa J.R. There you go. I knew I had a Lisa. And we'll take Melissa C., and that'll be it for this group. Okay, I have Russ M., can't read my own writing. Hmm. Oh, Ginger C. <laughs> and Katie G. Go ahead, Russ. Good morning, Jewel. Uh, thank you for your service. Good morning, my fellows. So, uh, to the wise, right? Last night, I had the, the privilege of talking with one of my dearest uh, friends here in the uh, program. And we were on the subject, it's funny, of how, you know, how great my wife is, really, you know. So here we go, right? And I think of this, like, don't don't be a killjoy. Don't be a wet blanket. Don't get angry. Um, you know, don't give them advice. Don't harp on them. Yet I was a tornado. Yet I was a bull in a china closet. And my wife hung in there. 
And the kicker is I get emotional thinking about it. Putting my, you know, my feet in her shoes, living the life that she lived for almost 20 years with me. Yet she loved me when I was the most unlovable. She hung in there. You know, she protected my kids. And she made sure I didn't get hurt, really. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be on this line. Because, you know, she said she was going to go. She was going to leave. And I have such gratitude, such gratitude to God, the fellowship, you know, everybody on the line here, my people at my home meeting, the big book, Dr. Bill. I mean, Bill, Dr. Bob. It's a miracle, and I'm on this line, that I have some semblance of sanity. Because if the shoe, you know, the shoe was on the other foot, I probably would have checked out. I would have rolled out. And she hung in there. And I understand what Bill's trying to get at, but it's hard when you're the other person. You continually get beat up emotionally. And then to see that she couldn't help me with my with my health. You know, she you know, she loves me, right? And she saw me destroying myself and destroying my life. Destroying everything around me and everybody around me. But she hung in there. That's a miracle. It's a miracle. So there is hope. You know, just like yesterday, they, they, they recovered. You know, that they sentence. They do recover. So we have hope. Thank you for that, Michelle. I love you guys. Thank you, Russ M. Ginger C., followed by Katie G. and Lisa J.R. Go ahead, Ginger. Oh, good morning, Julie. Thank you so much for your service. This is Ginger C., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Colorado. Wow, these paragraphs are really, really, really hitting home because I am walking these exact lines today in my present life. And um, my attractive message can soon turn into a very unattractive message, and my husband has let me so let me know. You know, am I being the the nag, the killjoy? focusing way too much on him and what he's doing and and he's eating he's eating sugar and he talks about how sometimes his fun fun fridays turns into a shitty saturday because he wakes up hungover and feeling terrible from the bites he's consumed the night before and how do i meet that how am i showing up with that you know page uh, 118 tells me patience tolerance understanding and love are the watchwords But, you know, I work with hospice. I work with death and dying. I know from my own addiction, sugar is a killer. It's the greatest inflammation towards disease, towards heart, towards cancer. These are realities. Your body gets sick. So I'm just so grateful to be reading these paragraphs because I want to have that love and tolerance. Like he so beautifully showed me. I was bed-bound. I couldn't even get out of bed. And was he riding my ass and giving me a hard time? No. He was very concerned, but he met me in such a different way. So I have to practice this, and I have to practice it hard because it's in my home. It's reality. But, you know, one of my good friends tells me, Ginger, there's three things you can do. Recover, recover, recover. That is all that I can do. And then I just have to watch and hope that God's love and light will go through and that those bites will convince him like they had to convince me. So I just love this last paragraph at the bottom. It says, we know these suggestions are sometimes difficult to follow. Absolutely. I have a loved one that's dying in sugar today in front of my eyes. 
but you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. Follow these directions precisely. Your husband may come to appreciate your reasonableness and patience, and this may lay the groundwork for a friendly talk about his alcoholic problem. It may open the door to his recovery. And I have to say, the other day, we were both getting ready. Uh, He was flying out for business, and I was getting ready to go to work. And I just put the second hour on the speakerphone and put it in the bathroom as we were getting ready, and he was listening. And it was so exciting to watch. I was observing silently with my mouth shut, and it was really cool. And he has come to me when I've shown him love and tolerance. He has come to me, and he's asked questions. But again, I have to just have this patience and tolerance and treat him like the sick person he is and trust ultimately that God is doing for him hopefully what he cannot do for himself. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Ginger C. Katie C. Katie G. Followed by Lisa J.R. and Kelly S. Go ahead, Katie. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, everyone. Katie G. Recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic and bulimic in Boston. And I heard the other day that there's a famous quote that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than anything on which it is poured. And um, I know for me, like this first principle of success, like KDG, like, are, are you angry? Are you angry when people are doing, not doing what you want? And are you, are you acting like you know what's best for other people? I mean, part of so much of my food addiction was fueled by rage, by rage at other people and what I thought was justifiable anger. And, you know, I know this is a little out of context, but my book is teaching me again, right? Because I asked myself, I turned statements into questions and I asked myself, am I angry? Am I, am I, excuse me, am I nagging? Am I being a killjoy? Um, You know, and I, and I, I love that we're talking about the different stages of drinking and it it reminds me of the moderate eaters and the hard eaters and um, you know I can get really self-righteous around my in-laws because I see them eating and I I I observe things that I'm like "Mm, red flag red flag 12 step but who am I right like who am I because hard eaters can look better than they look worse look better look worse than me and I know that when I was anorexic and people said Katie, you know, you look like you're really sick. I would say, well, you're jealous, right? Like you're jealous. You're jealous of the peach fuzz on my body. You're jealous of the fact that I can't see because I'm so dizzy because of anorexia and bulimia. You're jealous, right? And they were concerned, but I have a warped mind. So how is my, how is my, you know, talking at other people about my my 12-step recovery and here I come with the 12-step cape, how is that going to help others? I need to attract, right? I need to attract and be, you know, maybe be the big book that, that other people, the only big book other people never read. So, you know, I think with anger today as a recovered woman, it's something I look at every single day. Like, am I am I bringing anger to my marriage or am I Am I chewing on my tongue to not say hateful things until it bleeds because it is better to be patient and loving and kind in this world than to have to make another amend? Because if I'm making another amend for anger, I am not amending anything. I am apologizing and nobody's going to trust me. So how am I in my home? You know, how am I as a woman, you know, am I asking God to show me 
the right ideal, guidance in each questionable situation, sanity and strength on how to be a woman of honor, dignity and grace around other people, to stop diagnosing, to focus on what I can do for my recovery, and most importantly, what God wants me to do. And that's all I know. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Katie G. Lisa J.R., followed by Kelly F. and the Melissa C. Good morning, everybody. I'm Lisa J.R. I'm gratefully recovered by God's grace and mercy today. Um, I love this. He enjoys drinking. It stirs his imagination. His friends feel closer over a highball. And, you know, that takes me back to Bill Wilson on, on page two in his story. You know, uh, he would steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk and the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. And, you know, there's been a saying around since the first century uh, called in vino veritas, in wine is truth. And I could see that in my qualifier. I could see um, where the insanity of my qualifier, um, that was that was true. But I couldn't see it in myself until I started working these 12 steps that although I didn't get closer to people, I, my disease isolated me, um, that, that lubricant of taking that first bite and the, the sense of ease and comfort I got from it, um, it gave me a different kind of truth. It gave me, um, uh, just stilled my crazy squirrel cage in my head. Um, you know, that I couldn't make it without a binge, and they got closer and closer like birth pangs before um, someone gives birth till I, I was, you know, wishing and praying for death uh, because this disease made me so crazy. And so, you know, I no longer um, have to use that, that lubricant to still my, my soul, to still my heart. I have this... Um, by working the steps, I have this beautiful relationship with my higher power that I was striving for all my life and, and just couldn't find my way there. So I came into this program. Um, so yeah, um, you know, food is never going to be reasonably used for me to, uh, to be in a solution. Um, but this program is, and you know, I'd just like to say um, how grateful I am to all of you teachers and all of you fellows that have helped me um, come to this peace and serenity because I've, I've restored, you know, it's restored my marriage, it's restored my work relationships, and I'm just so grateful. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Lisa J.R. And Kelly S., you are followed by Melissa C. Go ahead, Kelly. Thanks, Julie, for your service. Kelly S. recovered in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, yeah, I just was thinking to myself, these poor people <laughs> that have lived with me and with us, I mean, when I read these paragraphs, what it thinks to me is, what it makes me think is, basically, um, they can't win. I mean, nobody that lived with me could win. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like, you know, buckle your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride, right? So I think about this. So, when uh with whoever i was with right whichever spouse partner i was with at the time it's like well you know what if they didn't say anything they didn't love me they didn't care they don't care what's going on with me they're not even saying anything i mean if they really cared they'd say something then if they say something it's like excuse me you don't understand what i'm going through 
you know, leave me the H alone. You know, you don't know what's, you know, you don't understand my disease. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to freaking understand my disease. They can't understand my behavior. They don't know what the heck's going on. They try so hard, you know. And so what I realized for myself today is, um, well, guess what? Nobody's going to fix me. Nobody's going to say the perfect thing. You know, there's not a perfect partner. There's not a perfect sponsor. You know, that was something else I looked for in the program forever. I know we've all heard those little things, you know, if, if somebody's ready, you can't say uh, the wrong thing, and if they're not ready, you can't say the right thing. And I look for the perfect sponsor. I look for the perfect partner, you know. And the only thing that has ever worked for me is these steps and my higher power. That's it, you know. And, um, you know, I think about when I'm reading this too, you know, that it, one of the things I can do today in my recovery to see is, is my, is my spouse having to walk around on eggshells today? I mean, is she having to worry that I'm going to be mad that she's not saying anything? Am I, is she have to be worried that, you know, that if she says something, I'm going to be pissed off, you know? Am, am, I, am I living in recovery and showing her? Am I being, you know, an example of love and tolerance? I'm telling you guys, those things don't come naturally for me, you know? Um, so, you know, that's just the thing is I can measure my recovery today is, because I grew up in a home where I had to walk on eggshells. I don't want to be that person today. And with this program, I'm not that person today, but I can measure my recovery by seeing, you know, looking at my spouse and seeing how that, that's going. And so I'm just grateful, so, so freaking grateful. It took me a while. Yes, it did. But you know what? Today I'm doing it. I'm doing it with you guys. And I love listening to you guys doing this one day at a time because I need to know it's possible. You know, it's possible. And uh, just with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you, Kelly S. And Melissa C., you're next. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Julie, for your service. It's Melissa C., recovered compulsive reader in New York. And, you know, I read this, and um, I know we're told that what we have is a, is a form of insanity. And I've, been, you know, and I've said those words over and over. It's come out of my mouth. Like, what we have is like mental, is a mental illness. And, you know, right now in, in my life, I'm, I'm really in the throes of seeing someone I love a great deal who, who is diagnosed with mental illness. And I can see how my disease is just like, is a lot like manic depression. You know, that there's a mania here. There's a bipolar to it and so when I'm like husband number one and and it's fun and it's social like I'm unapproachable it's just like when someone is in a mental illness and and they're like you know grandiose and and productive and and involved it it's still fun the crazy is still fun and you know and so for myself um you know I think about my husband and he didn't have this book um and and yet somehow in, intuitively, um, he didn't really get in my way and nag me too much. And I think, you know, when there's no enthusiasm to recover, when everything is great, it's a waste of time to even say anything. You know, the best you can do is just lovingly stand by. And um, you know, and then I look at um, you know my really my husband and, and people that I love that drink and. Um, I don't know. I can't, first of all, I can't diagnose another person, um, especially if they're having fun with it, you know, and I know for me, I ate in a way with lots of people and it was, it was fun when it was still fun. The problem is, is, um, 
it you know I continued when the fun was done you know and I had no ability to stop when I wanted to you know that's like the the important phrase there when you want to can you stop and you know so the most dangerous place for me um today as a recovered person is to count how many donuts other people have eaten <laughs> you know to count the empties to count the empty beer cans if i do that i'm in like serious danger because then I'm starting to feel resentful. And um, and I don't know. That could be just heavy eaters. Could be just heavy eaters, you know. Um, the, the thing that really jumps out at me is that if I'm going to be useful, um, I have to be pleasant. I have to be kind. I can't be a nag, you know. Everybody that nagged me, um, what did I do? I went into hiding. I, I continued to eat. They certainly didn't stop me from eating. But I stayed away from them. And so um, if I have something worthwhile, I don't want the people that I can possibly be useful to to stay away from me. I want them to feel that they can be with me. Thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. And we have time for one chair. Danielle M. Danielle, go ahead. It's yours. Um, hi, how are you? I can be heard? Yes. Okay. Uh, hi, this is Danielle. I'm a compulsive reader from New Jersey. Um, I was thinking about this chapter, and, um, I mean, it, it seems really valuable, you know, especially this passage if I have someone in my life actively eating or even actively drinking, and it's very valuable. Um, it's, it's good Al-Anon, I think. Um, but I think one way that it really hits home for me is, well, I don't forget what it felt like to eat and be miserable, and I don't forget the excitement of my recovery – I do sometimes forget what it feels like to be new in OA. Um, I remember when I realized I had this problem. I was in AA for a few years, and I went to a friend. I'm like, do you know anybody who does this program? Because this big book is all true about food. And she didn't, but she took me to my first OA meeting, and that meant a lot to offer. You know, it says that I think vision, you know, we offer this way of spiritual living, you know, to anybody who might be interested. And I thought that was a really beautiful form of service. Um, but the way I can try to apply this is for new people. I, I remember when I did come in, you know, I met somebody who did not deliver this in a loving way and told me what I was allergic to. And that was scary and confusing. And it made me run away, you know, but then I've, I've been absent long enough to, to start thinking like certain foods are the devil, you know, right? Like, and I have to remember not to deliver this message in that way to be that nag to tell people, Hey, you're dying. Don't you think it's crazy what you're doing? You know, it's always a constant call for love, and I love that this is another one of the places that the book, you know, calls me to be loving, and I, I want to apply that to new people. You know, ask them questions and tell them about my eating, you know, if I have that to share, but most certainly not to nag, um, threaten or be angry, because that anger is going to kill me. That anger is definitely going to kill me, and I saw that for sure. So thanks for letting me share. Uh, thank you so much. And now it is time to close the meeting, but I would like to tell you the share ID for today, Wednesday. Oh, somebody's unmuted. September 12th is 11,907. Uh, thank you, everyone who shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And will Jen A. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Good morning, this is Jen A. Recovered in Colorado. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. 
Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.